Hey there everyone, welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century, from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, we are at Hits21UK, that is at Hits21UK, and you can email us too, just send it on over to Hits21Podcast at gmail. Com. Thank you ever so much for joining us again. We are currently, you find us looking back at the year 2005. And this week we are going to be covering the period between the 28th of August and the 1st of October. So after a couple of longer stretches in our previous couple of episodes, we're sort of back down to a month again, almost. Uh, but still, lots of fun content to come. Just looking back at last week, uh, the poll winner... Um, I thought it would be a bit closer, but there was a bit of a runaway winner. It was McFly with I'll Be Okay. Well uh, done, so boys. Well done to the boys there. Um, all right, then. On to this week's episode. And as always, we are going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs we're discussing in this episode were at number one in the UK. In America, almost 2,000 people are killed during Hurricane Katrina. The $125 million worth of damage caused by the hurricane made it the costliest in history. Uh, Cities in Louisiana and Mississippi were the worst affected with, uh, as I'm sure most of you will remember, uh, 80% of New Orleans was flooded uh, for weeks afterwards. Um, During a benefit concert shortly afterwards to raise money for the survivors, uh, Kanye West utters the infamous phrase, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Meanwhile, further protests mount against the Iraq war after it is revealed that over 30,000 civilian deaths had occurred between 2003 and the summer of 2005. Demonstrations took place worldwide, with over 150,000 people marching through Washington DC to demand that the United States government pull out of the region. And in sports, the England men's cricket team beats Australia over five tests to regain the Ashes. The famous series, which featured players such as Andrew, Freddie Flintoff, Kevin Peterson and Steve Harmison, marked the first time England had won the Ashes since 1987. The matches, which were broadcast on Channel 4, reached a peak TV audience of 8.4 million people. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. The Dukes of Hazzard for one week, The 40-Year-Old Virgin for one week, The Longest Yard for one week, and then Pride and Prejudice for three weeks. Bloody hell, that wasn't a vintage period at the box office, was it? Wow. That is a Poundland (laughs) DVD bin special. Yeah, that is not good. (laughs) Do you know, Lizzie, when when I was typing those out, I was like, Jesus, this is charity shop bin, this, isn't it? It is. Jesus. It is. Yeah. (laughs) In the US, How I Met Your Mother, The Tyra Banks Show, My Name is Earl, Criminal Minds, and Everybody Hates Chris all air their first episodes. Blimey. And meanwhile, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia also airs its first season. Oh, wow. And finally this week, Rachel Stevens storms off an episode of Dick and Dom in the Bungalow after refusing to be covered in gunge. In response, the two hosts put a wig on a member of the show's staff and accused Stevens of wimping out. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do it. Have you seen this? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I have. 
she just kind of slinks off and it's like, yeah, where's she it's gone? It's so strange how it happens. Like, there's no grand exit. She just kind of quietly disappears in between ad breaks or exactly. like uh, in between uh, TV shows and then she just doesn't come back out. So they stick a, a wig on this guy who then pretends that he's Rachel Stevens for the next round of this game that they're playing. <laughs> If you go in on Dick and Dom in the bungalow, like you've got to be game for a laugh, haven't you? Like I, I kind of feel like they did the right thing there by taking the piss a bit. Because come on, Rachel, yeah. have a laugh. It's only gunge. <laughs> I think her excuse was that she just had her hair done, and she was like, "I don't want to get gacked by these two. If you're going on Dick and Dom, maybe don't get your hair done beforehand. Like, yeah, wait until afterwards. <laughs> if you're going on that show, you should expect the creamy muck muck. Uh, Andy, the UK album charts, how are they faring? Yeah, only a few to talk to you about this week. Um, So last week, as you'll remember, we had one of the biggest hits of the decade coming to the top of the chart for the first time. That was Back to Bedlam by James Blunt. So in the wake of that, we do have a few more over this period. Um, After that long eight-week run at the top by James Blunt, it's finally interrupted by Wonderland by McFly, um, which contains... All About You, I'll Be Okay, a couple of others. Um, that went to number one for one week and went single platinum. But I did say that it only interrupted Back to Bedlam because that then returned to number one for another week. And thankfully, that is all we're going to be hearing about it now. That's its final week at number one in mid-September. Finished its run with 11 times platinum as of 2023. Whew. So two more to talk to you about over this period. Um, After James Blunt was done, we had two weeks at the top from David Gray with Life in Slow Motion. What a a boring album title that is. (laughs) Probably just because I'm comparing it to Life in Cartoon Motion by Mika, which is like one of the most fun albums ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that went double platinum for some reason. Um, And then that was um, toppled by... An even more exciting artist, Katie Melua, with Piece oh, by God. Piece, who went to number one for one week for some reason and went quadruple platinum for some reason. And just like last time with Katie Melua, if you've got nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. And that's the end of the albums for this week. Yeah. Uh, in America, Lizzie, how are things? Well, in England, it's... Well, in England, I say the UK, it's like peak coffee pop. I didn't realise it was, it was all going on around this time. We had... Um, Bad day around this time as well, didn't we? Mm, yes. Yeah, last week's episode, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in America, on the singles charts, Mariah Carey's Reign of Terror finally came to an end in mid-September when Kanye West took the number one spot with Gold Digger featuring Jamie Foxx. Mm. It was his second number one overall after he featured on Slow Jams in 2003 and his first number one as the lead artist. In the US, it stayed at number one for 10 consecutive weeks and was eventually certified eight times platinum. Back in the UK, it narrowly missed out on the top spot, held at number two by a song we'll be discussing on this episode. As usual, the album's chart is much more active around this time. First up this week is Most Wanted by Hilary Duff, which got to number one for two weeks in early September, but only managed to get as high as number 31 in the UK album's chart. Next up is a big one, Late Registration by Kanye West. It sold 860,000 copies in its first week in the US, where it stayed at number one for just two weeks. It was eventually certified five times platinum over there, but again, narrowly missed out on the top spot in the UK, held at number two by Wonderland by McFly. Mm. 
And finally this week, there was one week at number one for rapper Paul Wall and his album, The People's Champ. Despite being certified platinum in the US, it failed to chart in the UK and there's no UK chart data for Paul Wall as a solo artist whatsoever, with oh, wow. his only UK chart appearance being on a Nelly track from 2006, which got to number 24. Sorry, oh, wow. Paul. Well, thank you both very much. Uh, we're going to come back over this side of the Atlantic now and look at the songs we've got coming ahead uh, this week. And the first of those is this. Okay, this is The Importance of Being Idle by Oasis. Released as the second single from the band's sixth studio album titled Don't Believe the Truth, The Importance of Being Idle is Oasis's 21st single overall to be released in the UK and their eighth and final single to reach number one. So this is the last time that we'll be discussing Oasis on this podcast. The importance of being idle (laughs) went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking McFly off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 47,000 copies, beating competition from Ponder Replay by Rihanna, which got to number two, Lay Your Hands by Simon Webb, which got to number four, Don't Lie by Black Eyed Peas, which got to number six, Long Hot Summer by Girls Aloud, which got to number seven, and My Doorbell by The White Stripes, which got to number ten. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, the importance of being idle fell four places to number five. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 22 weeks. The song is currently officially certified gold in the UK as of 2023. So, Lizzie, feel free to open the show with this one. Yeah, well, I would maybe like this more if it wasn't a complete rip-off of Dead End Street by The Kinks, right down to the Mm. music video. Yeah. Um, That will form, I think, the basis for a lot of my arguments on this, in that I think it's it's an okay enough song, but it's unoriginal at best, and kind of half-baked in some places. Like, I think, um, to get the good stuff out of the way, I think Noel's vocal on this isn't bad at all, and the production on this is probably my favourite of any Oasis song that we've covered. Like, 
I, I really like the kind of striptease rhythm of the backbeat, which gives it a bit of a drunken, sleazy vibe, as well as the the reverb heavy, I think it's an organ sound that comes in like during the chorus and, and in the guitar solo as well. Um, and also that descending guitar lick at the end of the chorus, the do, 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 do. <laughs> Again, I think that's all good stuff. And I don't think it's been a secret for any of us that Oasis are really good at crafting a sound. But Again, it's a shame about the lyrics. Like going back to that Kinks track for a second, it paints a vivid and compelling picture of what the 60s were really like for most working class people in the UK. Like, what are we living for? Two-roomed apartment on the second floor. No chance to emigrate. I'm deep in debt and now it's much too late. We both want to work so hard, we can't get the chance. The key there being that they want to work but can't due to the lack of suitable work and the chance to move to Australia for work has fallen through, meaning the cycle of poverty just continues endlessly until some small miracle can break it. And even then, there's every chance of falling back into it. Sometimes all it takes is one missed paycheck. And like on this song, Noel tries to convey a similar thing where the subject of the song is trapped in a similar cycle, but the Gallagher's approach to work has always been a bit more nihilistic, maybe. Like, to give you an example from um, their sort of period of dominance, is it worth the aggravation to find yourself a job when there's nothing worth working for? It's a crazy situation, but all I need are cigarettes and alcohol. And this one's no different, since the final line of the final verse has Noel more or less admitting defeat to laziness. Like, it could be worse, I suppose, but it's much harder to identify and sympathise with this character that Noel has created compared to the one in Dead End Street who laments their situation, but who is actively trying to change it for the better. I feel like with this, even a small rewrite could have made this song one of their best, but yet again with Oasis, I'm left with the sense that their heart wasn't really in it. Like that craft like hey. I just said, hey. <laughs> like crafting a sound has always been their strength, and this is no exception, but it's much harder to ignore the shortcoming of the lyrics in a song like this where they are the centerpiece as opposed to something like Lila, which is driven by that like pounding glam stomp, and you, you don't notice the lyrics as much because it is just this monolith of rock. I think this is a more straightforward. It's supposed to be a song full of pathos and feeling, and I just don't get it from this at all. Like, going back to Dead End Street one last time before I move on... Um, Dave Davis said that the song was the epitome of what the kinks were all about, describing it as, quote, reflecting a fondness for the past, but at the same time expressing a determination and yearning for change. To me, Oasis have always been too much about the former and not enough about the latter. And I think this song proves it more than a lot of others. Mm, I think that's very, very, like, really, really well put. And actually, you've sort of made me think there that, like, by the time Oasis come round, I think this is something we've discussed a little bit, that I think that 
rock, by the time Oasis comes around, rock is a very conservative genre mm. that yeah. likes to, it's very self-referential and it has its own canon and the canon must not be disturbed that I think is set after the kinks time, if you know what I mean. I feel like the, the rock oh, canon yeah. is set in the sort of like in the 70s. And mm. I do feel like because Oasis come into rock when it has gone through several changes and now is only really about, oh, this is good because it reminds me of this. Of course. Uh, Andy, how about you? Yeah, um, this is an interesting one for me, this, um, because I've kind of got a couple of different things to think about. I mean... I definitely, when I saw this on the list, was like, oh, yeah, important to be an idol because, you know, I think the trajectory that Oasis' number ones have been on since we started, it's been pretty gradual but steady curve upwards. We've gone from absolute creative bankruptcy in um, Go Let It Out through the Hindu Times, which is, uh, yeah, we'll just... That noise describes it, really. And then um, Lila was actually pretty decent. And now we've got important to be an idol which i've always been pretty fond of so i was like oh yeah definitely wave this one through i like this um but i've kind of been reconsidering that for a couple of reasons firstly i quite naively didn't know about this kinks connection um until lizzie told me about it and that really has changed everything to be honest because <laughs> it's um it, it's basically it's borderline a cover really like it's it's pretty much just a knockoff of that song and that video so that really has, you know, put a different lens on my view of the song. Um, and also, I was very, very struck by what you said there, Lizzie, about the lyrics and how it just doesn't really have the punch that it should do. Um, so I'm feeling more critical about this than I did. But there is a lot of good about this. Um, I think from a creative standpoint, although it's very, very heavily inspired by the Kings, I do think from a creative standpoint, this is the most juice we've got out of them from any of the number ones in this decade and it's quite a good note for them to go out on in terms of the charts um you know they've been on a steady incline in terms of creativity since they bottomed out with standing on the shoulder of giants and they i mean don't get me wrong they never ever come anywhere close to the first two albums in terms of you know innovation or creativity but this is better i like i i I agree with what you said about how that baseline and how some of the instrumentation and some of what they're doing in terms of um, structure with the song is much, much more interesting than what we've been used to um, in recent years from Oasis. And at the time, I really did like this, but it's always sort of felt like a last hurrah that, you know, this is sort of, they're going out on a relatively high note. Mm. Um, and even at the time, I felt that way because, you know, they did have another album after this and I went to see them on that last tour and we didn't know at the time, but uh, we kind of did know, really. It was it was no surprise at all that they broke up because although this is definitely, you know, a last burst of energy from them, it's, it's sort of like a last gasp rather than any kind of revival. You know, it's, they've picked a good song to be inspired by here. They've come up with quite a nice idea in terms of how they're going to, present it as this sort of old-fashioned almost honky-tonk kind of sound you know it's a good idea um and it's a nice point to leave them on and this was you know this got a lot of radio airplay at the time i think this was of the number ones we've had by them i would say this is the only one that i remember really kind of penetrating the radio and penetrating public consciousness and sort of making it onto people's ipods and stuff like that this is the only one i remember really breaking through from them from the noughties to be honest um and 
I think that's a nice thing for them to go out on a much, much better song than previously. Um, and did it not have that context? If it didn't have that, if it didn't, um, you know, basically <laughs> knock off another song, then I would be far, far kinder about it because this is enjoyable. I would actually choose to listen to this, but I can't really deny that it's basically just cribbing off another idea. But it's something, it's not nothing, and previously Oasis have given us nothing. Um, so, yeah, this is decent. This is decent. I like this. Wouldn't go any further than that. It's a solid thumbs in the middle from me on this one. Yeah. I'm actually kind of relieved that this is their last number one, not just because it's Oasis, but because their <laughs> next single is Let There Be Love, and that's yeah, the that's worst naff. kind of Oasis to me, where it's like, let's do Imagine again, like, no, let's not do Imagine Again, please. <laughs> Lizzie, you know, it's funny. I also quite like Noel's vocals on this. Um, but the more I've listened to this and Lila, obviously, in the past like couple of weeks, the more I'm starting to think that like Liam should have done the vocals on this and Noel should have done the vocals on Lila because I feel like the kind of slacker, ruffian character that's being played on uh, The Importance of Being Idol is more suited to Liam's vocal style. And yeah, Noel's more melodic singing is better attuned to like the arena-sized pot rock of um, Lila, um, and also like Reese Ifant in the video has basically the same style as of hair uh, oh, yeah. as Liam at this time. Um, it feels a little strange, I think, that this is the last time we'll be discussing Oasis on here because we've, you know, they, I think they were on our first episode, weren't they? With Go Let It Out, yeah. at least in one of our first they couple were. of episodes. Um, but yeah, I think they they go out with something fairly decent here. You know, I, I remember in 2005, uh, my mum saying that she heard a song on the radio that sounded like a really good Oasis impression. And it just turned out to be this, um, which I think starts to get to my issues with it, actually, which is that I appreciate Oasis trying to do something a little different to their usual style, you know, but... I'm not entirely convinced by how much conviction has gone into this. Like you, Lizzie, I struggle to find the emotion underneath it. Um, like you've pointed out, Lizzie, this is just Dead End Street, but with a few bits and pieces twizzled around and, you know, like how a PR statement would say something like, given that Oasis twist or whatever. And then going back to my mum's comment is that it sounds like someone doing a good impression of Oasis who themselves are doing a half-decent rendition of a Kinks song, and it feels like you have to peel back several layers to get to the heart of this. Um, I was also distracted by how much this reminded me of another Kinks track, obviously, uh, Sunny Afternoon. Of course. Um, and weirdly, Down and Out from the Bugsy Malone soundtrack, the, uh, Ooh, the bit towards yeah. the end with the criminals, the, uh, the do 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 um, where they're all banging the um, gruel balls on the table. Um... I do think, though, that Oasis is like slightly plodding, slightly baggy kitchen sink approach to the instrumentation here. It definitely suits them. And that's a little strange because around this time, obviously, Oasis would also be doing things like Let There Be Love, which is also a little more, you know, not what you'd necessarily expect from Oasis. It felt like a bit of a return to something like Stop Crying Your Heart Out. Um, yeah, yeah. And whereas this, they kind of go a different way out of their comfort zone, and I think it's okay. Um, I also hmm. think it contributes a little bit to the story. You know, this lethargic, lazy man who can't be asked to get out of bed, holds nothing but apathy for everything outside of his window. 
Um, I also think as well that around this time there was a, a re-release of a music video. There was a re-release of a song of theirs called The Master Plan, yeah. which is obviously on that much-famed B-Sides album, which the music video was really heavily inspired by all the Lowry paintings of industrial landscapes. And this seems to fit within that mold too. You know, it's all very cobbled streets and condensation on single glazed windows, you know? Um, it's just, I think it's a shame that the imagery is just a bit stronger than the material. I think the ideas are, you know, the, the initial ideas are quite strong here, but the eventual execution is kind of so-so. Yeah, it's a, it's a decent way for them to go out, but I'm not really going to miss them either. I feel like pop is just, it's entering a bit of a, an exciting period and Oasis it just... They kind of have a part in it because, you know, Shock of the Lightning was good um, and pretty successful and um, Dig Out Your Soul was obviously like a big deal as well. So it's not like they, they're they not part of the furniture going forward, but there are just new names coming through now. Like we've mentioned Rihanna, you know, Kanye West is on his second album and selling loads of copies over in the States. And it just feels like the landscape's changing a little bit and Oasis are part of the old and we need to move forward into the new so around this time that important to be an idol is number one it's pretty much 10 years exactly since the battle of Britpop, and yeah. it's interesting that this oasis song could quite easily fit on any of their 90s albums whereas damon albarn from blur who's coming up next is doing something completely different to what blur would have been doing back in the day i think and both at the top of the charts still isn't that nice yeah <laughs> You know, Lizzie, you are going to love my notes in a second. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> Good. Because the second song up this week is this. It's there. Okay, it's Dare by Gorillaz and Sean Ryder. Released as the second single from the group's second studio album titled Demon Days, Dare is Gorillaz's seventh single overall to be released in the UK and their first and last single to reach number one. So this is the last time and the first time that we'll be discussing Gorillaz on this podcast. 
Dare went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Oasis off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 27,000 copies, beating competition from These Boots Are Made For Walking by Jessica Simpson, <laughs> which got to number four, The One I Love by David Gray, which got to number eight, and Jackie Body by Le Rhythm Digital, which got to number ten. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Dare dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 38 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. So, Andy, uh, it's Dare. Go ahead. Yeah, I've um, I've got some analysis to make about this song that I think is really kind of deep and really, I've really put a lot of thought into it. And that's that this song is just really good. <laughs> that's it that's it my is. comments <laughs> no not really but I mean it's kind of hard for me to articulate it any more than that because there's just so much going on in this song there's so so much going on and I think you know what I would say straight off the bat is that it's a production masterpiece it really mm. is that all these constituent elements should not work at all this funky little sawtooth synth that they use in, which is really really catchy along with this kind of quite invasive drum sound combined with Damon Albarn combined with Sean Ryder mispronouncing the title of the song this should not work at all but it all just comes together to make something that understandably is completely unique that's kind of impenetrable really in terms of figuring out what this is but is just so so infectious and lovely to listen to and um that's what I would say is that there's really nothing else like this from this era. Like, if you look at the list of songs, not just that number one that we've covered, but just look at the landscape in general, it really stands out like a sore thumb. The only other stuff you could possibly compare it to, really, is other things by Gorillaz. You know, th- th- this is a real creative peak for Gorillaz and Damon Albarn specifically. You know, this is, um, you know, Feel Good Inc. and Dirty Harry, both off Demon Days as well. What an album that is. You know, just really really interesting music that's been put out there and every time I've listened to this recently you know I've noticed something different about it um, that you know it has more of a sense of rhythm to it than I realised it has more of a kind of rise and fall in terms of how it takes you through the song than I've realised um, that Sean Ryder actually contributes far more to it than I remembered and yes he's like basically out of tune most of the time and um, it's kind of odd that he's on here at all but it's an idea that's so weird that it just about works um yeah i just i just really 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 like this i think it's not exactly perfect i think it slightly runs out of roads towards the end it could probably do with one or two less repeats of the chorus but it's a minor point you know it, it i'm really would have absolutely no problem listening to this day after day. It's just a gorgeously put together song. It's amazing that this was released in 2005 and still sounds like it would be really fresh and new today. Um, yeah, kind of knocked my socks off. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, Andy, we've got some very similar notes on this. <laughs> I, I also said that Sean Ryder stands out like a sore thumb. It's kind of like if it's like if Marky e. Smith turned up on a Human League song or mm. <laughs> John yeah. Cooper Clark turns up on, I don't know, Duran Duran. It's like it's, it shouldn't work, but it does. Um, 
I'll try my best to keep this brief because I feel like if listeners turn the volume up loud enough, they'll be able to hear Rob vibrating in anticipation to talk about this one. (laughs) Um, But yeah, really like this. Like a lot of Gorillaz songs from around this time, it's infectious and hypnotic. It kind of takes a pop sound and leads it down a murky path full of outside influences that contort and mutate it and it spits it out the other side like Frankenstein's monster both human and inhuman at the same time and yeah going back to Sean Ryder like that detached Mancunian bellowing should not work in this context but it's part of what makes that so engaging like Noodle and Sean Ryder make for quite a good like yin and yang pairing like the angel and the devil on the shoulder especially towards the end where Ryder is more prominent in the chorus and he's basically yelling at you like hold it down there (laughs) (laughs) um I mean I'm, I'm hoping Rob might be able to illuminate us a bit more about the meaning of the song in the context of Demon Days because as much as I've heard the album it's not one I'm massively familiar with i think on its own i would say it's possibly a song about being able to live in the moment without thinking about the worst possible outcome every time like the way social anxiety can hold you back from doing things with other people that you would otherwise enjoy it's just that you doubt yourself and this is that voice saying no just do it (laughs) like there's there's nothing stopping you except yourself but I could be way off. Um, no, I'm who knows? with you on that. I mean, I don't know the answer either, so I'll wait for Rob to illuminate us. But yeah, the, the never did no harm bit is a bit that I feel like is the key to it, really. That it's like, just have a go, you know, to do some things. Dare to do some things. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't mind that it's kind of vague and mysterious like that. That it kind of leaves it open to interpretation a bit, at least listening to it in isolation. Again, could be different in terms of the album, but... I'll um I'll leave that with Rob. But yeah, just to finish off, I actually slightly preferred the Death From Above remix. Um, you know, Andy, you were saying that towards the end it does kind of run out of steam a little bit. I'm inclined to agree. I, I mean, I don't mind it too much, but what the remix does is it does what a lot of my favourite remixes do, which is take the original song and make it sound really fucked up and evil. Like, it, it gets stuck in your head, the rhythm, just like the original, but then it breaks out a pneumatic drill in the middle and starts grinding its way through your skull as well. And it is, like, the first time you hear it, you're thinking, Jesus Christ, what is this? <laughs> like, God, get it off. But it you get sucked into it, and it kind of takes that hypnotic factor and just ramps it up. And by the end, you're kind of drained, it's it's about 12 minutes long. Um, I think it's on Spotify. Go and check that out if you're a fan of this song and you've not heard it because I think it does do something really interesting with the original. Uh, you might not like it and that's fine, but yeah, I think it kind of added to my enjoyment of this, this song. And yeah, it feels like... I'm so excited to say it. it's the first time in 2005 that I've genuinely loved a song. It's my... It's, can't believe I'm saying this. It's my first vault since Dry Your Eyes. <laughs> That's wow. nuts. Yeah. It's so funny that you mentioned that, Lizzie, about um, 
remixes, I definitely, definitely will go and give that a listen uh, because Gorillaz have got form with remixes. And, That's and, true. Yeah, it, I was so gutted that we never got a chance to discuss uh, 19 2000 because the, oh, the, soul, yeah. the Soul Child remix of 19 2000, it's really right up there as possibly my favourite pop song of the whole noughties. I just absolutely adore it. Like, I love that so much. And specifically the remix. Like, the original's fine, but, oh, that Soul Child remix. I'm so glad that I have some excuse to mention that here because it's the only time we're going to talk about Gorillaz. Uh, so I had to throw that in here. Yeah, there's also the Ed Case remix of Clint Eastwood, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's better per se, but it definitely puts a really interesting new flavour on it and I knew that version first so yeah they've got yeah. good form with remixes far better than most people yeah absolutely to be honest Lizzie as much as um, you know as I'll explain my history with Dare and Demon Days is long perhaps longer than any relationship I've had with music I still listen to on a regular basis um, I've never really known what Dare is supposed to be about I think that it's because Demon Days isn't really a concept record. It there's no central story or okay. narrative that I've ever been able to pick up. And plus, Noodle obviously is very prominent in this, um, but she is also um, featured in the video for the song which was released after this, which was El Manana, where. She's on the um, lighthouse island thing that flies through the sky. And then at the end of that video, she, inverted commas, dies. And then five years later, you find out that she hasn't died and that she's gone to Plastic Beach with the rest of the gorilla's crew. Um, she gets rescued um, when she's on a ship and it's sinking. And they all go... It's in the video for On Melancholy Hill, where you find out that she wasn't oh, killed awesome. at the end of this El Manana. Yeah, it's wonderful. These two Gorillaz records, Demon Days and Plastic Beach, are like two of my favourite albums of all time, which I'll get into um, in a second. But El Manana was released as a single after Dare, but on the album it's three tracks before. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm never quite known about Dare's place in the album either, because as you were saying, Andy, you know, the whole main hook is kind of like an accident you know the the yeah true the, it's sean Ryder and damon Albarn were in the studio together and sean Ryder was supposed to be saying um it's coming up it's coming up it's there but then damon asked him to do it faster which is what you hear on the record but the way that he kept saying there was there or there and so damon went hang on and so the whole song title comes from Sean Ryder just not pronouncing the word there properly. And um, it's funny, Lizzie, that you mentioned Marky e. Smith before, because obviously he ends up on a Gorillaz track on Plastic Beach called Glitter Freeze. Um, oh, does he? Yeah, it's not a great track, though. Oh. Um, it's very, very irritating, actually. Um, oh, no. <laughs> it's a lot of very screeching... Yeah, it's not great. Um, a lot of screeching and yelling, and it's not great. But that's another one, actually, that starts with a little kind of studio, not mistake, but, you know, something that wasn't intended to be recorded, um, where Mark E. Smith, when he went into the recording studio, he, into the actual booth, he said he wanted to be facing north. And so you can hear him say, where's north from here? 
and then there's Morse code that plays, and then the song starts, and the song is... I wish I liked it, because Marky Smith on a Gorillaz record sounds like such a great idea, but I really don't know what they were thinking uh, with Glitter Freeze. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is a shame. Um, But back to Dare, um, before I start my analysis of the song, I just wanted to mention that great video on YouTube, which is um, every recorded instance of Sean Ryder saying the word Dare. And so you have all of the recorded versions uh, on the actual track, and then you get him doing it live on Jules Holland and at Glastonbury and at various places. Um, And he's at various stages of intoxication uh, throughout some of these videos, and he's really going for it. Because I won't do it justice by doing any impressions, but if you thought that there was only one way, or maybe even two ways, to say the word dare, um, you won't feel the same after watching that video. Turns out there are many ways to say the word dare. Um, Demon Days, though, overall, um, is a huge deal for me, and so are Gorillaz. Um, so I'm glad that we get to discuss them on this podcast, um... I think I maybe mentioned in a previous episode, actually I think it was only last week or the week before, um, when Demon Days went to number one in the album charts, um, it was the first album I ever bought with my own money. Oh, wow. um, and I still have the CD downstairs. It's now broken. The oh. two bits of the jewel case don't fit together anymore. Um, but I used to, um, on my birthday every year, I used to ask for money and then as a bit of a birthday tradition for about four or five years between being about 10 and 14, um, me and my parents used to drive to the Trafford Centre and then spend all my money and then (laughs) have a McDonald's and go home. And we did that on my birthday for three or four years and each time I was there I would go into HMV and buy albums and Demon Days was out at the time and I remember really liking um, Feel Good Inc. at the time and also Dirty Harry. Um, and so, yeah, I went ahead and bought Demon Days. Um, and so I used to sit and listen through every song on my little CD player while reading the the booklet, which had loads of drawings and doodles and things like that representing the the various songs. Um, and this, at the time, this this never used to be my favourite song on the album. My favourites were always either Dirty Harry or El Manana or, you know, like Feel Good Inc. or something like that. But, but Dare and Feel Good Inc. were my first proper introduction to them and they really, uh, really captured my imagination. Like, you know, I, I, I knew Clint Eastwood and 19-2000 and I knew that they were an animated band and that they were kind of like the brainchild of an artist called Jamie Hewlett and some guy who was in a band in the 90s. You know, when I'm 11, I don't really know who Blur are. Um, But they were still a mystery and a massive enigma. You know, the the first band I loved that also didn't make a lick of sense because, like, I loved Busted, but they made complete sense. Everybody knew who they were, whereas with Gorillaz, there was always this kind of mystery behind it you know i still remember when they performed live on the plastic beach tour and it was the first time they'd ever performed as humans they hadn't performed behind a screen or you know or something or other um and so 
this getting to number one, and I remember, you know, being obsessed with the music video uh, with the, you know, the giant Sean Ryder head and the combination of uh, live action and animation in the music video and being really enthralled by it. So obviously time has gone on. Um, you know, Plastic Beach came out in 2010. That is another landmark album for me in a, in a, in a big way. Um, obviously none of the singles off that end up being anywhere near as successful as uh, the ones from Demon Days. But it was still just hugely important for my musical education at the time. Um, and so, you know, a long time has gone on and you'd think that, you know, the first album you bought that you would be slightly, not ashamed of it, but, you know, you sort of go, oh, I bought this. And then you go, and then all of your friends go, oh. And whereas with Demon Days everybody has the reaction that you two have, which is like, oh, that's cool. That's good. Um, and it's because this has really stood the test of time. I think, you know, that the band's best stuff, like this song, um, is sort of the best that pop can be. You know, it maximises pop's potential to bring audio and visual creativity together to create an entire aesthetic experience that defines a particular period or flash point in your life you know it can be instantaneous it can take years but to ask for anything more from pop and a song like this i i think it's really hard i think you know to, to pull from so many places and sources like dance and electro funk and disco and inexplicably you know sean Ryder, you know it's actually interesting I think, as we were saying before, and as you were saying, Lizzie, before, for this to come up alongside Oasis, because I think the little dichotomy between Dare and the importance of being idle explains why I've got more time for Damon Albarn than I do either of the Gallaghers. I yeah. think when it comes to pop and music in general, Damon just seems to have more of an open mind of about things like this. Um, but the, I think the, the experience of Gorillaz looking back, is that Gorillaz albums to me are like hotels. Well, the best ones are anyway, are like hotels where they bring in guests from as many places as possible. And Alban, who's kind of like the concierge, you know, he manages to pull it all together so that your experience of the hotel is always pop, always fun, always slightly off balance and slightly creepy, but in ways that are captivating rather than off-putting. You know, I, I mean, I realise I've kind of talked around the song more than about it, but I think that's just because it immediately sets my mind running with ideas and possibilities. You know, um, it, its main drive, you know, its one big idea, the it's coming up, it's coming up, it's dare, is one of about five different things from this that I love and will always wait to come back around whenever the song is playing. You know, another is the brief period of silence before the final chorus, and then when Sean Ryder comes comes in with um roses gabor who is needles voice uh when they when they're together like you were saying lizzie the devil and the angel on the shoulder um is wonderful and you have all the little instrumental counter melodies and decorative textures that kind of shimmer in and out of view there's just so much to focus on and it's so rewarding on repeated listens and to this day i still think that it is just as exciting as it always has been. Um, I think Demon Days is a perfect record from back to finish. Um, from Wait, I've got that wrong. Um, from start to finish, um, like I say, I still have it. I still listen to the album regularly. Um, 
there isn't really a bum note on it, except maybe, like, White Light isn't as good as the rest of the record, but it's just, it is a proper sprawling smorgasbord experience of pop uh, Demon Days and Plastic Beats together, and stuff like Feel Good Inc. and Dare and Dirty Harry and El Manana all being from the same record. Like he was saying, Andy, they, it sounds both of Earth and also not. There is such a distinctly unique quality to a lot of Gorilla's mastering and production and ri- even just writing as well. It's um, Yeah, it immediately takes my mind somewhere else. It is transportative in yeah. a way that quite a lot of pop it doesn't even try to be. And that doesn't necessarily mean that songs that aren't transportative don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're not worth their weight in gold as well. But this feels like it's not even from the future. It's like it's from another planet, almost. Um, the, the, the combination of things in this song should not be. It, it's almost like it shouldn't exist. And yet it, it does. And yeah, I still just find it to be uh, just incredible. Really, really incredible. And I'm so happy that this was the first thing I ever bought in my own cash. Um, the first <laughs> single I ever bought in my own cash comes next year because I didn't really buy CDs uh, okay. singles. I normally just used to wait for them to come around on the radio. Um, but they're coming up uh, next year around the summer because I also bought them with my money <laughs> on my birthday. Um, but yeah, no, this is wonderful. Uh, and we still have another song to go. So, the final song that we've got up this week is this. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Are we about to get it just a little hot and sweaty in this? Ooh. Baby. Ladies, let's go. Soldiers, let's go. Dolls. Let me talk to y'all and just, you know, give you a little situation. Listen, listen. You see the get hot every time I come through when I step up in the spot. Make the place sizzle like a summertime cookout. Proud for the best chick. Yes, I'm on the lookout. So banging, shorty like a belly dancer with it. Smell good, pretty skin, so gangster with it. No tricks, only diamonds under my sleeve. Give me the number, but make sure you holler before you leave. I know you like me. I know you do. That's why we need. is Don't Ya by Pussycat Dolls and Buster Rhymes. Released as the lead single from the group's debut studio album titled PCD, Don't Ya is Pussycat Dolls' first single to be released in the UK and their first to reach number one. And this is not the last time we'll be discussing Pussycat Dolls on this podcast. The song is a cover 
of the Tori Alamazi song from 2004, which did not reach the UK charts. Doncha first entered the UK charts at number 85, reaching its number one position during the third week on the chart, knocking Gorillaz off the top spot. It stayed at number one for three weeks. In its first week at number one, it sold 85,000 copies, beating competition from Dr. Pressure by Milo vs. Miami Sound Machine, which got to number three, and Fix You by Coldplay, which got to number five. In week two, it sold 65,000 copies, beating competition from We Be Burning by Sean Paul, which got to number two. And in week three, it sold 47,000 copies, beating competition from Gold Digger by Kanye West, which got to number two. Do You Want To by Franz Ferdinand, which got to number four. And Nine Million Bicycles by Katie Melua, which got to number five. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Doncha dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 52 weeks. The song is currently officially certified two times platinum, so double platinum in the UK as of 2023. Uh, Lizzie, how do we feel about Pussycat Dolls and Doncha? I think occasionally we do have those songs on this podcast where we we all kind of agree that it's good, but it sort of doesn't open itself up for much in the way of analysis or criticism. It is just a pretty solid pop song, and this is no exception to that. I think the Pussycat Dolls phenomenon itself is somewhat more interesting than this song, because like I say, this is, this is solid, but... I remember even at the time where it felt like this group had just come out of nowhere and they also had like shops in Las Vegas and like branded clothes and like there was games rumoured and I think they just kind of came out of nowhere in a way that you could maybe say the Spice Girls did too but the difference is is that the Spice Girls they all had their kind of individual identities and everybody claimed you know you're this one I'm this one with the Pussycat Dolls it feels like more of a it feels more like Nicole Scherzinger and some other singers as in if I right if I asked you to name any of the other members now could you only because of Snoop Dogg's rap in Buttons (laughs) okay (laughs) Ashley Roberts because she did um, Strictly yeah okay so yeah, Karmit Bakar, Nicole Scherzinger, Ashley Roberts, Kimberly Wyatt, Jessica Sutter, and Melody Thornton. Could have done Ashley, Melody, and Carmi, as uh, Snoop Dogg refers to her as in the Buttons song. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's kind of, um, like, it's interesting in that regard, because I think even at the time there were questions about this song, and like, why do you not hear any of the other members apart from on the chorus it is pretty much all Nicole and it's not like it's an established group where you can kind of do that it's like everyone gets their own individual piece you know like we did with S Club for example where Joe would get a song then Bradley would get a song that kind of thing it's interesting that they're being presented to the world as like this brand new pop sensation and yet you only really hear from one member and, like, she's probably the best singer of the group, so if you're going to do it with anyone, it makes sense for it to be Nicole. But I just find that quite interesting that 
it's sort of not really presented as like a united front it doesn't seem it's more just like like i say nicole and some other singers um you realize i'm dodging talking about the song because what is there to talk about this song was everywhere at the time it's one of those one of those moments in pop where everybody knows a song and it's it sort of reaches over into like parody you get it on like dead ringers or the Chris Moyles Breakfast Show will do a version. And it's that sort of big where it's kind of all-encompassing. But in terms of the song, like I say, as much as I do really like it, and I think it has stayed the test of time, there's just not that much to say about it. Um, I, I feel like if I maybe call on one of you, we might get some talking points I can lean on because I'm I'm struggling. As much I've, as I like this song. I've got a fair bit to say about the song itself. Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree a little bit. Um, I, well, this is weird in that I disagree in that there's not much to say about it. I think this is quite interesting because, um, I mean, straight off the bat, this is this is kind of a story of two halves for me in that there's the lyrics and the vibe and what this song is and where this song came from. And then there's, you know, the musical aspects of it. And the hmm. musical aspects save it for me because if it wasn't for like those funky horns and some of the catchy little elements to put into it, this would be going straight into the pie hole for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Be- partly because um, the the lyrics, and maybe I'm taking this too seriously, and well, I'm definitely taking this too seriously, I won't lie, but I think the culture that a lot of young girls and a lot of young women went through in the noughties um, can't be traced directly back to this song but I think um, this song is really symbolic of it that this song basically sets out its stall of um, trying to get a man by talking shit about his girlfriend saying that she's not hot and that she would be better if she was hot Um, and basically pitting women against each other for, for entertainment and to make money mm. out of. Mm. And these are supposed to be aspirational figures. This is a girl band. This is a very, very far cry from girl power in the Spice Girls. This is very, very toxic, and I think it's really horrible. Um, and it really puts leaves a bad taste in my mouth listening back to this, because it's really of its time. Um, and yes, I'm taking that too seriously, but I just wanted to say that, that it would never, ever get more than, you know, a kind of middling review from me because i think the 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 whole message and the whole vibe around the song is really horrible um yeah so there is that but having said that it is saved by the fact that i think that it's especially that it's just that gives it a little bit of an extra punch that makes it not just typical kind of sexy r&b um, I think that gives it something extra. It is actually a decent song. It is actually fun to listen to. Like it really gets in your head, but kind of in a overly simplistic, annoying way. Um, you know, I'm not sure how good a thing it is that it's, it's so catchy and that it gets in your head that much. Um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm, I'm trying to be a bit more positive about the song, but I am. I'm not that positive about it, really. Another thing which kind of colours my view of it is, I'm glad you touched on it, Lizzie, about Nicole Scherzinger being, you know, kind of the load-bearer for most of the work um, of this song. And it's kind of like that in general, that I remember reading an interview with Nicole Scherzinger a few years ago that was quite sad, really, where she said one of her worst memories, Pussycat Dolls, was 
Um, she sat in the studio after finishing working on a song at the end of the day. The other girls came in, finished listening to the finished song. And we're like, oh, this sounds good. Not realising that it was them. It was their song. And they'd never heard it before in their life. All of the other members, except for Nicole Scherzinger, had never heard their own song, ever. Um, and she got really, really upset about it. And it was kind of one of the things that led to the breakdown of the band. Um and oh, that's wow. what it, that's the thing. It's like they're just a corporate product, really. That's designed to make money off girls by dicking on other girls. And uh, the more I talk about it, the more I really don't like it. I'm afraid. Um, so yeah, like it's it, it as a pop song. Yeah, it I can understand why it's successful. Like it is a decent pop song, and I won't take that away from it. But everything around this and everything that's being put out from this song, oh, I really don't like. No, sorry. I guess there maybe is like a counterpoint to what you're saying. I think I think you do have a really good point, but there is also the sense of like, is it pitting girls against each other or is it calling out men who fall for this kind of toxic talk and sort of forget about the person that they actually love in the process? I think that's, that is a fair comment, but that's a fair comment coming from an adult, I, I kind of question whether that kind of nuance is something that would have been caught by, you know, teenagers listening to this. I feel like it reads mm, more probably. simply as you are worth more if you are hot. I feel like it just it reads that way. And yes, perhaps it's got a layer of irony to it that it's taken the piss out of men who were just like, oh, hot girl, you know. That that would make it much more um, of an enjoyable thing for me, but I'm not really sure that I'm not really sure that the target audience would kind of get that nuance from it. But it's a fair point. I'd never thought about that, to be honest. Yeah. Well, for me with this, it's really strange been listening to both of you because I feel like I have portions of your notes that are basically verbatim, but I seem to like it more than both of you. Um, It's really strange how I basically agree with everything that both of you have said. And yet, (laughs) you know, because... The thing with the thing with the Pussycat Dolls though is that like because their follow up singles weren't as good by you know and because it didn't their star didn't you know their star kind of fell a bit earlier than everybody was expecting I think it's easy to forget just how much Don't You made it seem like Pussycat Dolls were just gonna take over the planet yeah because like you were saying Lizzie there was the there was the video game that was apparently planned, like you say, the clothes. There was just, it was just all of a sudden like it was, this is the new thing you need to care about now and there's no way to avoid it. Because the whole rollout of this and the song itself is so bold and brash and so very American in a way that British pop hasn't quite caught up to yet in 2005. Like, it's getting there, but I remember this feeling just as exciting as something like Lady Marmalade and things of that ilk, where us quaint Brits were grateful for the Yanks to even look at us, let alone bless us with pop that felt this, at the time, fresh and new, because, you know, here they were with something that did make a lot of people stand completely still, just through shock. And, like, you know, they just needed to look at this new thing that had come over the Atlantic. Um, And personally, I think that a lot of the sudden excitement and shock has mostly been retained. I think the idea, looking back, was that they would be like Destiny's Child, but louder and more aggressive and more dangerous, etc. You know, their music video starts with them 
doing, you know, Greece-style drag speedway things along flood chutes in Los Angeles or wherever. And I think that this mostly fits that bill. You know, you get Buster Rhymes coming in, adding a bit of masculine energy to the whole thing. You know, you, you get a lot of posturing and braggadocio. You get a chorus, I think, that's like to die for. It is an instant meme thing. It is instant meme yeah. material. Not that we had those words at the time, but, you know, don't you wish your ex was X like me or Y like me? You know, that's... Yeah, that is very easily applicable to lots and lots of situations. You know, it's very broad, uh, you know, like kind of a, a thing that is easily applicable in lots of areas of life that means that people will always come back to it and think of it. Um, you know, they've got the aggressive dance moves. Um, you have this new pop star to love in Nicole Scherzinger. And, and I've always kind of liked that line as well, that maybe next lifetime... You know, I think looking back, you know, it's a bit strange that the song seems to conclude on <laughs> Buster Rhymes trying to work out how he can convince his girlfriend to be in an open relationship so he can, quote, hit the both of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but then at least Nicole Scherzinger does say, like, I ah, see, you know, I, I, you know, if, if I was her, I would feel the same way, but let's leave it. Yeah, you know, like, like, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. And but still I totally agree with you, Andy. Like the whole chorus is just like Don't you wish that person was more like me because I'm great and she's not and like you were saying, there's this idea of pitting women against each other, which comes back in pop quite a lot. Um, that women need to compete for men's affections and not lift each other up but tear each other down, etc. etc. Um but it's a good laugh, I think, overall. The song, I think it would still go down a storm um, if it was randomly thrown on at a party. Um, it, I think maybe, though, my sympathies towards it are being affected by the fact that this and Gold Digger and My Doorbell were constantly on the radio during the summer holidays in August 2005 and September um, just because they were just, you know, they were huge hits. And I remember going on holiday, a camping holiday to the Lake District, and we drove around listening to Radio 1 quite a lot. And by the end of the week, my mum wanted this Gold Digger and My Doorbell on her iPod. She wanted them on her iPod, and she uh, that was the day she found out about the uncensored version of Gold Digger, um, which I find to be less creative than the radio version, because... I think that Broke broke is a much catchier hook than the actual version uh, that appears on the album, but I digress. Um, <laughs> with this, though, I remember feeling so sad about 24 hours after this went to number one because I realised I wouldn't be able to chat about it with my primary school friends anymore because school was over. You know, we always used to go into the, um, the playground and be like, oh my god, did you hear what got to number one yesterday? Oh my god, oh my god. And... I couldn't talk about it with anybody because primary school was done and there was nobody to get excited about pop music with, except my mum. But, you know, you need your peers to also be excited about pop music too. Yeah. And I didn't know anybody well enough at high school to be able to have those kinds of conversations with them. And so I remember this feeling particularly momentous and special in a way that it probably didn't deserve. Um... Because, in retrospect, this all probably seems a bit cute now. Because this initial wave of excitement, this this Gabbo-style, 
you know, like, oh, here's the thing that you must be obsessed with. It all fizzled out a lot faster than I think we expected because mm. I think a lot of the follow-up singles just didn't quite live up to the hype and all the noise. You know, like, I, I, I liked Buttons and Stick With You is okay, um, but Beep was a bit tacky and Hush Hush was really forgettable. Um, Wait A Minute was a little weird and was dismissed as such. Um, I Don't Need A Man was fine. Uh, when I Grow Up was devoid of melody um there's too much going on in that one and all of it is just shouting um and i hate this part like can anybody sing that apart from the bit that just isn't it just isn't the title <laughs> like you know plus the second album didn't hit in the straight in the same way and it is weird how like by the turn of the decade other than you know jai ho they're basically done and yeah. I do think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it just became the Nicole Scherzinger show mm. when not many people had really anticipated that. You know, like he was saying about S Club, where, yes, it becomes the Joe show, but also Bradley has a song every now and again. And then the others, the other members are there providing backing vocals and whatnot. And I think the idea was that Don't You would introduce Nicole, then the next song would introduce Ashley or... Melody or whoever the other ones were, but that didn't mm. really happen, you know. And I think that this it does kind of speak to the whole issue that eventually pulls them down, which is that this is basically just Nicole Scherzinger and Buster Rhymes and the other. Oh, and they're there. And obviously, there was the whole conspiracy about the Pussycat Dolls that there was actually a hundred of them and that they were a dance slash stripper crew. That like right. you know that. <laughs> Did you not remember this whole story? This, no. this theory that, like, the Pussycat Dolls, that there were six of them in the group, or five of them, or whatever, but, like, there were supposed to be hundreds of them, and that it was the front for some kind of trafficking ring. And oh, God. There was this whole thing, um, and that, like, they were going to change members every year. Or, like, no, Nicole would be the front and then they would switch out one member for another. And none of it ever really materialised or turned into much. But there was this conspiracy that the Pussycat Dolls were a front for something and that there were hundreds of them who could potentially be in the band. And then it just all ends up really with Nicole Scherzinger becoming a judge on The X Factor and Ashley Roberts getting all the way to the Strictly final, even though nobody liked her because she had professional dance training. Uh, it's, yeah, all very odd the way that it ends. Uh, we'll probably talk more about it when we get to um, Stick With You, which is um, later this year. But, yeah, I think Doncha is is sort of great. Only sort of great, though. Um, it's not like a classic in my head, um, but it's good enough to end up uh, in the vault for me, um, along with Dare this week. Um, as well. They're, they're my two picks uh, for The Vault. Just going back to the legacy a second, I know they do come up again, but it's interesting that, you know, they did kind of fizzle out after two albums, but they're still like top ten best-selling girl groups in the world. Like, ever. Yeah. Yeah. They sold like over 54 million records. Wow. And yeah, they that were a something. big deal, but yeah. again, like you say, it, maybe it is just that kind of Nicole took centre stage and the others weren't ready for it and that's kind of mm. why it fizzled out. So, Andy, um, 
Are there any songs going in the vault or the pie hole for you this week? I'm putting Dare in the vault. Um, that's an Lovely. easy decision. Important to be an idol is going nowhere and Pussycat Dolls, uh, don't shed that, narrowly misses out on the pie hole for me. Cool. Um, Lizzie, how about you? Um, important to be an idol is kind of um, mild thumbs up, but going in neither. Dare is going in the vault and don't shed narrowly misses out on the vault for me, but close. Okay, so that is it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening once again. When we come back, we'll be continuing our journey through 2005. We're almost at the end of 2005 now, and we're in a good, exciting period as far as I'm concerned. So we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye now. See ya. Bye-bye. It's there. It's there. It's there. It's there. It's there. It's there.